Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and I'm here today with the writer Elizabeth Hyde. Uh, before we start, I'd just like to say happy birthday to our engineer, Chaz Barrett. Um, so thanks for being here today, Elizabeth. Thanks Welcome. for having me, T. Welcome. Um, well, by way of introduction, um, Elizabeth Hyde was born and raised in New Hampshire and briefly practiced law for the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. In 1982, she took took some time off to write her first novel, Her Native Colors, and never looked back. She has been awarded working scholarships to the Red Loaf Writers Conference and teaches creative writing through artist-in-residence programs. Elizabeth is also the author of uh, Manusuk Valley, which I should have asked you how to pronounce before the show. Is that, did I get it close? Or? You're close. It's Manusik, and mm -hmm. we can talk about titles and pronounceability later. Okay, thank you. Manusik. <laughs> um, and crazy as chocolate. I got that one. That one's pretty clear for me. Right. <laughs> um, she lives in Colorado with her family. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks. It's great to be here. And, and Elizabeth just told me before we came on the air that... Um, uh, she's in the June 22nd issue of Entertainment Weekly, uh, her book, The Abortionist's Daughter, which she's here uh, in town tonight to read at Borders, 7 p.m. Um, the Abortionist's Daughter has been listed as a must-read for the summer. So uh, make sure it gets put in your beach tote bag <laughs> or whatever the, that qualification, mm -hmm. the must-read of the summer entitles you to, right? <laughs> Tote bags, um, flip-flops, backpacks, backpacks um, water bottles, um, <laughs> summer. Um, well, Elizabeth, I wanted to uh, start out by asking you one one thing, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about where you're going next on your book tour. Sure. Um, but on the publicity materials, that it said that you that you're. Um, like points of discussion, you know, and and one of them, the last one bulleted uh, was her passion for the Grand Canyon. Ah, I can talk forever about that. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> well, but it's so funny because it's there's not a Grand Canyon moment in the abortionist's daughter. In That's the, true. In the present book, so it's kind of seems to... Tell us how that doesn't come out of left field. Well, there might have been a Grand Canyon moment in the book if it were not for my husband. What happened was when I was halfway through writing this book, we took a family trip down the river for two weeks, and it was just... Just wonderful. I mean, I've never, I, I didn't expect to like it. I thought I would be way too hot. I thought my children, who I kept thinking of as babies, who were in fact 11 and 14, I kept thinking, ah, my babies are going to fall out of the boat and drown. <laughs> I didn't want to go at all. And I had like one of those life changing experiences. And I wanted, I came off the river and I just wanted to run away and be a river guide. But since I couldn't do that, why not? Uh, why not? <laughs> well, it's still on the list of things to do. Okay. Yeah, it's coming up. I'm going to go to River Guide School, I hope. But anyway, uh, we came off the river, and I came back to work on The Abortionist Daughter, and I decided uh, that one of the main characters was going to be a former River Guide. Now, this took 200 pages of trying to write his background and trying to explain credibly how Huck, the detective in the novel, came to be a detective after having been a River Guide. Didn't work. 
didn't work at all. And I kept talking to my husband over lunch about this and saying, I've got to figure out how to get him from the Grand Canyon to this little <laughs> town in Colorado. And finally, my husband just said, you know, give up. Don't try and put him in this book. It, it's a whole book by itself. The Huck story, the, Huck is River Guide. No, no, not, not Huck is River Guide. Uh, the story of the river trip. And oh, okay. So I stopped trying to make the detective a former river guide. Right, and I gave... Right. Just a full breath to a two-week river trip. And so the book I'm working on right now is about a, a group of uh, 15 people who go down through the Grand Canyon. And it's a blast to write. And I did get to go work as a river guide again. I kept bugging the um, the company that took us down the first time to give me a spot as an assistant. And that finally came through in September of, I think, '05. So I schlepped bags for two weeks. And it was it sounds glorious. It, it does. It being is. on the river with the water and, and the, the rapids, right? And, yeah. and camping each night. And, yeah. um, well, maybe some, some of the listeners have plans of their own to do some rafting. So, um, but, so the story that you sort of, that you pulled out, and it, and it was going to be the detective and the abortionist's uh, daughter, his backstory, right? Right. So, but you've pulled out that segment, but now this is turning into a whole different story, right? Is that, I am, am I understanding this correctly? Huck isn't one of the group that's in the No, story. I okay. just took that out of his background, and there is a whole new character who, uh, well, there are 13, 14, 15 characters in this novel. It's been kind of hard to keep them all straight. Actually, that's not true at all. It's really easy to keep them straight for me, but what's hard is to make sure that the readers can keep them all straight. Because they're all alive in your head, so right. they're very clear, right? clearly defined against each other. And Okay, right. and so is this, this new book that you're working on, is it also a mystery? Is it a, Can it be categorized as a thriller? You know, I can't really say that at this point. I'm, I'm almost, I'm pretty far along in it, and... Uh, I wouldn't, I guess, call it a thriller, but there is, there's an element of surprise in it, and I can't go into that right now. Right, of course not. Yeah. Well, did you know when you were writing The Abortionist's Daughter that there would be, because it, did you know it would be a mystery? Or cause yeah. it, there's a murder, so yeah. it's, it's a murder mystery, mm -hmm. right? And then I've also read that it's categorized as a thriller and in, in the suspense right. genre. Right. So was that intentional when you started writing this book? It was. Uh, my third novel, um, Crazy as Chocolate, was a hard novel to get published. And one of the complaints before it was published from uh, my former agent was that it was too quiet. Now, that turned out not to be such a problem, and the publisher that I found on my own published it because he liked it. He liked that, that quietness about it, if you will. Um, what does it? What do you think that meant? What does that mean if the book is know. quiet? Frankly, I think it means that somebody just doesn't like it. <laughs> I think it's a polite way of saying, uh, "This book wasn't really keeping me up all night." But I is, don't know. Are the so are the people that um, are your your first books? Are they also very plot driven and and a fast paced? Not as at this all. Book is? No, the the first two novels are are real much more character driven, and Crazy as Chocolate is also much more character driven. So what happened was I was sitting with, uh, having heard my agent complain about the book, my former agent complain about the book being too quiet, uh, and I said to myself, well, hell, I mean if if I've got to write something, I'm going to make it really noisy. 
<laughs> so I'm going to make it a murder mystery. And then I thought, and I'm not not only going to make it a murder mystery, but I'm going to make the person who got murdered one of the most controversial people I can possibly think of. And what would that be? An abortion provider. Right. So So that was the genesis. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Um, because I, I read um, somewhere that uh, that you had said that John Irving is your is your mentor, right? And that he had taught you the value of a good story, yeah. And and that with this book, you weren't you weren't uh, setting out to talk about a polemic issue and right. or to prove any uh, your politics right. or change anyone's minds. Mm-hmm. So I did. I wondered how you decided to write it. Right. Um, I studied with John Irving at Breadloaf back in the late 70s and early 80s. And he kept talking about, you know, how you have to have a good story to tell. But a lot of times he was just talking about, he'd mark up my manuscript, he'd say, great narrative, great narrative. Um, And then, of course, there were places where he wasn't writing that, where it wasn't so great. But I never really had a grip for what he meant by the narrative part until I began to um, teach. And teaching really made me a lot more um, analytical about fiction and about stories and about the structure of a story and story arcs. Um, and in this novel, I just I just became aware of uh, driving a story forward instead of just giving so much time to the characters and what they're doing and what they're thinking and feeling, which can be a fairly internal kind of story, to making it a little bit more external. And and so to accomplish this, you you focused on the plot. I did. I did and, a and lot of plotting and in this. And the narrative structure, mm-hmm. right? And so did you so how much of that was in place when you like, did you sketch it out? Did you have the scaffolding there or a skeleton and no places you were going to move? No. The only thing I knew was that this woman was found dead in a lap pool. And I had, and that was one image. And then there were two other images um, that were driving me with this book, and they weren't necessarily connected with the person found dead in the lap pool. Um, one image was of a woman swimming inside late at night with a snowstorm raging outside. Just that image of being in a pool with with snowflakes, with a blizzard raging outside and snowflakes falling in a solarium, outside a mm. solarium. And the other image was that of um, an, an ex-boyfriend nagging the mother of his ex-girlfriend to the point where the mother would say something like, oh, would you please quit groveling? So that phrase, wow. quit groveling, was really key to to driving the story forward. And I really wasn't sure how it was going to get there, but I knew I had to write the book towards that line. And that character, yeah. being that, the ex-boyfriend. Because yeah. oh, you really, you, you mentioned you, you set out to write a noisy book. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, where did I? I wrote a list of things where I thought, Elizabeth Hyde has gone to town because we have abortion, murder, um, right to life groups, stalking, the sex boyfriend, internet porn, child right. child pornography, and um, and a son with Down syndrome. Right. Yeah, it's a handful. That's a lot. That's a lot to work in. And I was thinking, I wonder how many of those 
because those are those are large uh, charged topics or, right and so um how many of those were you consciously adding to the book to make it noisy or were they just surfacing like they, you said this image did right um most of them surfaced as i as i was writing the book um but part of me was very conscious of i i know you've been in writer's workshops so you're i'm sure that you're familiar with how in writer's workshops, you're always talking about, well, what's at stake here? What's at stake? Mm -hmm. And there's a great uh, book of writer's exercises called The Writer's Idea Book by Jack Heffron. And in it, he's got a whole chapter on that he calls Upping the Stakes. And he talks about, you know, when your story's kind of flagging and you don't know exactly what to do, just up the stakes for one of your characters. And that was something that drove me to... Uh, give Diana a son who had Down syndrome because uh, I thought that would have made things very difficult for that marriage. It was not probably the greatest marriage to begin with and then that was kind of something that flared up and then went underground for a lot for many years and between Frank and Diana. Because and so um, it seems like another way of developing her character because even though she works at the Center for Reproductive Choice, right. she then chooses to keep the child yeah diana chooses other other people in that situation may have aborted the child right right so that was another way that you were um giving depth to diana's character yeah because you um you you don't you don't uh, you don't show your politics in in every page of the the book elizabeth it's not um as if it's a, a morality tale um but this is one of the ways that you're actually making her more sympathetic right because you do show her her sides where she's very sharp-tongued and 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 wonderfully willful too but some people would say ah oh, you know <laughs> be turned off by that or mm -hmm. so but but in this way it shows the something very very human that she made and, and well, that she wonders if she even made the right choice right right eventually right you know I think I just wanted to go against stereotype and I think you know a lot of people would assume that somebody in her position with her politics would not think twice about getting rid of a baby but she's had a baby she has has her daughter Megan and the moment the title character the title character the abortionist daughter and I will talk a little bit little bit about the title um, the word abortionist is is uh, not a preferred title for somebody who provides abortions, and I'm aware of that, but I purposely used it because this is how the town thinks of Diana Dupre. She's a very controversial figure, and there is a strong contingency of right-to-life people in that town, and they see her as kind of a criminal. And uh, there's a, there's a part where... Huck, the detective, refers to Diana as an abortionist, and Megan, her daughter, is very quick to correct him, say, uh-uh, that's not the term you use for my mother, you, t you use abortion provider. But I really wanted to use that in the title just because it captures Diana's controversial nature Yes, in a big way. And it's interesting, too, um, everyone's related to Diana in a way it seems like, so this was a way... Maybe let's let's take a short break, and then when we come back, maybe let's talk about the title. Sure. Like why wasn't Diana sort of the title 
figure uh, rather than her her daughter. Maybe we okay. can talk about that when we come back. Sure. Um, you're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and we're talking with writer Elizabeth Hyde today. Uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Living Writers Show. Um, today I'm talking with Elizabeth Hyde. She's here in town to uh, read tonight at Borders at seven o'clock with her book, uh, just out in paperback with Vintage, uh, The Abortionist's Daughter. Um, if you're just tuning in, we, we took the break and we were talking about the title, the title of the book, The Abortionist's Daughter, and how uh, doctors refer to themselves as providers uh, rather than abortionists. Um, so why, why did you decide to title the book this, Elizabeth, especially sort of making hmm, remotely Megan the main character who is Diana Dupre's daughter? Uh, uh, first of all, though, the, we have to back up. The working title for this book was Rock, Paper, Scissors, which is... A perfectly serviceable title, but when you really think about it, it could apply to almost any book out there. You know, you could probably figure out some way to link that whole theme of the game, rock, paper, scissors, to many good books. Was that a central image? Because as far as I can remember right now, it doesn't, that doesn't occur in the book at all. No, and I think I was trying to like work it in as this real symbolic thing that Megan could do with her, with her, uh, baby brother not baby but when he got oh, old enough with Ben yeah there were some really bad scenes that I took out um, about them playing rock paper scissors and it just didn't make sense so I knew I was kind of struggling with that as a title it just didn't really fit the novel and I was just about ready to send the book off um, and uh, it kind of came to me it was like one of those flash things that you know you like to talk about but rarely happen but it, it did come to me that the book was about the daughter of a controversial figure, and it was about this daughter trying to make sense of her mother's work. And that's not all it's about, but Megan is central to every... She's the central spoke in the wheel, or the center of the wheel. Uh, there's her relationship with her father, her relationship with her mother, her relationship with Huck the detective, uh, and her relationship with um, her ex-boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So all of those are kind of... Com everybody has Megan as a common element. Uh, 
Uh, and I realized that this book is about uh, the, this this daughter who who has grown up with a very controversial figure as a mother, um, who doesn't necessarily agree with what her or approve of what her mother does for a living. Uh, it scares her, and there are some scenes where she's in her mother's clinic as a young girl and happens to come across the contents of of one of the procedures, and uh, it's not pretty. Mm-hmm. It's not pretty at all because it's more of a late later term. Not necessarily. Or... I mean, anything, any you know, anything medical like That's that is, is not pretty. And she mm-hmm. was thirteen, and it scared her. Mm-hmm. So that remark that she makes to her mother, um, "Have fun killing babies," um, is kind of her gut level reaction. She knows that's how she can kind of get to her mother. Mm. And it's interesting because you mentioned earlier that people in the town would would be the ones that would be using the term abortionist. So in a way, her Diana Dupre's family would be defined by her right, um, right, her employment right. So so sure, her husband, even though he's a DA, would be the abortionist husband right. probably in a way. Right. In the book, I felt that I saw Diana Dupre actually more of her transforming in ways that I felt I wasn't quite sure that that Megan did. Megan was sort of a constant. And Uh and so that makes sense to me now that you say because she's functioning as the spoke within relating to all the characters. Right. Um, That's really interesting. Um, Well, well, how about would you would you like to read a little bit? Um, Sure. This this is something I haven't done at readings because I never really know my audience at readings. Not that I know my audience right now, but... But we can't see them. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to read just a little section here about Megan. Uh, It's kind of Megan's backstory uh, and about her relationship with boys. Do we so, need to know anything coming into it, or is it? I don't pretty, think you do. She's well. She's nineteen years old at the present. When the, when the story opens, she's just taken some ecstasy, and it is while she's high on ecstasy that she finds out that her um, that her mother has been killed. Uh, later on, I'm trying to sketch out Megan's background growing up, and so this is um, Megan as a child. Okay. Okay. It's chapter three. Megan had always had a lot of boyfriends in her life. When she was three, it was Beau who lisped. When she was four, it was Tyler who wheezed. At the age of five, she shared her first brief kiss with a boy named Nick, who parked himself in front of her and then tipped forward like one of those magnetic kissing dolls. It was a huge letdown. Throughout grade school, there was always one boy or another calling the house. Because Megan was not just pretty but smart and responsible as well, Boys called under the pretense of needing help with their math, spelling, geography, anything to talk to her. Boys who, in their all-male groups, made gagging faces at the mere mention of a girl's name, would secretly invite Megan to their private family birthday dinners at Casa Bonita down in Denver, where the bland Mexican food took second billing to the teenage cliff divers who daringly plunged from faux cliffs into bubbling pools right beside your very own table. In junior high, there was Matt, who skied, and Brendan, who snowboarded, and Kyle, who skateboarded. Nobody lasts more than a month or two. Not that she meant to be cruel. She just lost interest after a few movies and make-out parties. Mostly, Megan saw the boys 
as an equal opportunity for cross-gender education, so that when Kyle stuck his hand up her shirt and ran his fingers over the budding nipple, she stuck her own hand down into his pants and touched the soft tip of his penis. To Megan, breast buds and penis tips felt about the same. Yet by the time she reached high school, Megan decided she was ready for something more serious. She scouted out the older boys, who were also scouting her out, and when homecoming rolled around in October of her sophomore year, she had narrowed her choice to two boys. Dwayne, who played soccer and logged onto his email account every night as Nutkicker22, and Bill, a more studious boy from her advanced placement U.S. government class, who had been urging her to join the debate team since, since September. Bill Branson was outspoken about everything. He called the president a liar. He called Fox News a bunch of liars. He called the school board narrow-minded and the city council a bunch of weenies. And in the government class one day, he made a point of calling Justice Blackman a hero for writing the Roe v. Wade decision. Megan didn't catch on at first that he might be expounding upon this last issue for her benefit. But over lunch one day, as Duane desperately juggled a soccer ball nearby, Bill told her that he admired her mother's courage. Not that I'm advocating abortion as a means of birth control, he said between cheesy bites of a thick calzone. It's just that mistakes happen, condoms break, and you shouldn't have to pay for it the rest of your life. Megan did not respond. Without knowing it, Bill was opening up a very big can of worms here. Her personal feelings about abortion were far more complex than he could have known. She'd first seen the products of her mother's work when she was in middle school. Every day she walked over to her mother's clinic after school to do her homework. Usually there were no signs of the business at hand around, and she found an empty examination room to work in. But one day she happened to walk through the lab and made the mistake of glancing into a white bucket on the counter. She stared in horror. There were tiny fingers with miniature pearls at the tips, noodly little legs and bean-shaped heads, all mixed together in a thick, bloody soup. She continued to stare until one of the nurses happened to come in for something else. When she noticed the bucket, she whisked it away, swearing under her breath. Megan hadn't talked about the incident with her mother, but it haunted her. At home that night, she watched her mother julienning red peppers before dinner, and she couldn't help but envision those same hands tugging on baby parts. What an awful way to earn a living, she thought. She began to see her mother in a vaguely diabolical light and worried that she might be carrying around her mother's karma. And then I go on to talk about the, the uh, discussion that she has with Bill about this. Um, Bill turning into the boyfriend that she has that then becomes the ex-boyfriend. And and the menacing stalker sort right. of that's woven throughout. Right. Oh, right. right. Well, thank you. Thanks, Elizabeth, for reading. How do you, um, how do you choose what you're going to, like, do you have already have a plan for what you'll read this evening at Borders? Pretty much. I mean, it's awfully easy to read just the beginning of something because your readers probably haven't read the book. Uh, mm -hmm. But is that boring for you, though? No, I like to perform it. Oh, you do? Okay. Do. So I you do. see it as a performance. You're I do. kind of giving it, yeah, yeah. The, the way you read it, the inflections, I could definitely um, enjoyed it very much. Well, um, well, why don't we take a short break and then we'll, we'll be back. Uh, you're listening to The Living Writers Show and we're talking with Elizabeth Hyde today.
Hello, you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm sitting with writer Elizabeth Hyde, and we're talking about her her book, The Abortionist's Daughter. Um, so, thanks for reading. We just heard um, a, a brief excerpt from Elizabeth's book, and uh, if you'd like to hear more, please go to Borders this evening. Um, so Elizabeth, how, when you're, you're working with such a politically charged issue as abortion, um, I read uh, that John Irving, your mentor, was actually, um, the, the, the writer of an article said he was the last person to actually grapple with abortion as a, a main, sort of the main back, mm-hmm. background of a novel when he mm-hmm. wrote The Cider House Rules. Right. And that there's an interesting parallel in time that then it seemed like Roe versus Wade was was under attack. And now there's been sort of almost another conservative um, rising to, to question right. uh, Justice Blackman's and Ed All's ruling. Right. Um, so when you're dealing with such such a big issue and 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 with one that is surrounded also by stereotypes you'd almost think of characters so how do you find your story within that what are some strategies well i guess you you just don't want to write a morality tale you don't want to just write from one perspective um nobody likes to read a novel that's trying to preach and i really didn't want to do that at all and I think I've I've written the book so that uh, my own politics don't play a very huge part in it. I mean, obviously, Diana is is has built her whole profession on being pro-choice, but there are people who really have a problem with what she's doing. And I think this country needs an open dialogue about abortion. I think this country needs people to sit down and talk honestly, and not quite so polemically. Uh, Anna Quinlan wrote a column in Newsweek quite a while back, quite a while back, and I think I read it when I was writing the book, uh, where she just said, "Let's talk. Let's talk without backing ourselves into a corner." And at all the book groups that I've gone to, uh, this this book does seem to spur a discussion about some raw feelings about an issue that isn't going to go away in this country. Uh, Anyway, and and so when you're when you were writing the story, because there is a character Rose who um, Rose fries, mm-hmm. and and she's the one character that we see in the story who's a young young woman who gets pregnant, and um, she actually is. Uh, it's actually by it's kind of interesting because it's um tell me kind of wave at me if i'm saying too much about the story because i don't want to give anything i don't think you are away okay um but just feel free to make (laughs) hand gestures and i'll I'll cut it short um but anyway she's impregnated by the son of the the reverend stephen o'connell who's in this lives in the same town as diana and who's basically her her arch enemy Right. right, because he's the one that's um, organizing people to picket outside her clinic and to right. pour tar in front of the doors, and um, and so, um, but with with Rose, there's no uh, she. Do you want to talk a little bit about that character and why 
uh, you chose Rose to be. And so she's almost a periphery character. Whereas, um, like, why didn't you choose the abo- like Diana Dupre's Megan, her daughter, to be the one that grappled with the actual right. issue? Right. I I probably did think about that about having Megan get pregnant, but I just think that would have been way too cliche or mm-hmm. way too expected, way too structured. You know, if if you're upping the stakes, I guess that would just be too. Uh, artificial in, in terms of plot structure. And and Rose came into the picture kind of halfway through writing the book. I didn't know about her at the beginning of the book, uh, but I had this image of her in her T-shirt that says Foxy Lady on it, and uh, that was a real clear image to me in, in her mind, in my mind, about Rose. Just, you know, sometimes a character will kind of leap out at you just by what he or she is wearing or what he or she is carrying around with them, and Rose was one of those characters. So I wanted to use her. I had to put her into the story. So you felt it was important to have someone in, like one character, a minor character, kind of go through this different, because basically Rose changes a lot because at right. first she wants to keep the baby and right. her parents are against it. But then um, but then she ch- sort of changes as, right. as the book goes along. Right. Um, so, so is that one way? Because um, I'm, I'm trying to understand a little bit more about when you're writing such a big, within such a big political issue, yeah. how you're staying true to the story itself, like making sure that you're checking in with that's what's driving it, and you're not being driven by um, your own political ideas about it. Or well, I think once you have your characters fully formed in your head. You don't have to worry about the the politics of whatever issue is in the background or foreground because the characters still drive the novel. No matter how much you want to plot things, the characters decide themselves. I mean, I know that sounds really um, cliche, and, and writers have said this before many times, but you know, once your characters are fully formed, if, if the story's any good, they're going to be defining the direction that it takes. Um, and you kind of stop thinking about the political backdrop. Uh, and, and I hope that I, I, I don't see it as a, a vehicle for my... I mean, if I wanted to write about my feelings about abortion, I'd be an essayist. And right. I'm not an essayist. Right. Because your mom, she, she wrote to Justice my Blackman, right? <laughs> yeah, ages ago. Uh, to she, thank him. Yes, well. she did. And uh, she got a personal letter from him, too. This was back when they could, when I guess personal letters were written uh, and um, she was very outspoken about that well um, almost like Diana Dupre outspoken then as well right maybe there was a little I, bit of no, your mother in that no Not no really. okay no. I'm, I'm reaching no. there huh yeah. <laughs> well yeah. um, so when you were when you were researching for the book though um, I saw in your acknowledgments section, the page, that you thanked a detective. Yes. And so what did, did this, did did you become friends with the detective um, or did you already know him or was it purely because you were researching the book and and it sounded like he was a reader, one of the the readers of your manuscript? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, the the detective that I uh, got to give me feedback on the book was somebody that I met through taking... Uh, a course that's available probably in many towns throughout the U.S., but it's, it was called the Boulder Citizens Police Academy. Did that mean that you then had your own citizen beat? <laughs> 
You can't go quite that far. It's really oh. just a, a fancy way of saying, you know, you join up and you uh, you attend 10 weeks of courses. Um, they're given, like, for three hours a night on a Wednesday night, when, and it's open to the public, and they introduce you to all sorts of different aspects of the police department. I mean, you get to hear how dispatch works, and you get to hear, oh, some somebody came in and just gave us all that he knew about search and seizure law. And one night, uh, two detectives came and talked about case invest- investigation, criminal investigations, and one of them was this very, very helpful detective who uh, was who offered, when I told him that I was writing this book, uh, just offered to answer questions and... You know, it was great because if I asked him something, he'd just pick up his phone and he'd call over to, you know, the the uh, tech technology people and say, well, when you have this going on on the computer, how do you find out that? So he could just get immediate answers for some of the questions I had about how a police department works. And one thing I really had to avoid was writing um, the cop scenes based on whatever images that you get from watching TV. And, you know, I've nev- I, I never practiced criminal law. Um, I practiced for the Justice Department, and that's very, that was very, very different. So I didn't have a so- strong sense about a, how a police investigation would work. And talking with him and going to this course really helped. The best part was going out on a, a ride-along on a Friday night where uh, I just went out with uh, another woman, a police officer, and just saw what she did on her beat on Friday night. And it was it was fun. Oh, it sounded... What was, can you remember anything? Did anything sort of well, intriguing happen when you were out in the, the, the squad car? <laughs> uh, a, lot, a lot of it, her work that night was busting up college keg parties. Right, so, right. So, so I don't, yeah, I don't know if there's any similar um, citizens group that can join the, you know, go, you know, visit University of Michigan right. <laughs> keg parties. Yeah. So any parents <laughs> listening to this, uh, do not investigate this as an option. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, well, the, you know, the police department really wants you to come in and understand how they work. They're they're wanting to put on a good face. To the do you public, think it's public so. relations? Yeah, that's what I yeah. was wondering if yeah, that was it, it. Yeah. And then, and this detective who you befriended, um, is, did he actually read the entire manuscript? And he was one of the, or how do, how would that work? Would was I, I I'm trying to remember back. I don't think he read the entire manuscript. I think I gave him chunks to read that would deal with police procedure. Okay, and so not necessarily. Um, Huck and Ernie, not the those two characters, because there's two detectives right. in the book. So you weren't concerned as much. He wasn't um, reading that area of the manuscript, their relationship or... Oh, I did. I had to, him read okay. anything that really Huck made an appearance in. It, it just didn't seem to be... I know it wasn't the, the entire manuscript, but I just wanted to make sure that the dialogue between the two cops would ring true or that they would indeed be talking about this aspect of the case at this particular point in time. Did you have anyone from the uh, the other, I don't mean to say, I was going to say the other side. That sounds, you know, I'm making the situation yeah. worse. The, um, uh, but the, the people who are pro, um, pro-life or the right to life people, uh-huh. did you have anyone that you spoke to directly for your research with that? To no, in, but I read a lot. The characters? I read a lot. Uh, there's a wonderful memoir out by Al Press, who is the son of one of the abortion providers in Buffalo, who himself was friends with uh, Bernard Slepian, who was killed in Buffalo. I can't remember the exact date. 
uh, but he wrote about what it was like growing up. Was that one of that was a doctor? Bernard Slepian was a yeah, doctor who was, was of, who was yeah, murdered. Who oh, I see. Uh, and this and what what year was that? Was that back in the that's like, what I can't remember because early nineties. I remember there was more. Um, it seemed to be yeah. more violence against individual doctors yeah. were being targeted. But anyway, uh, this writer A. L. Press wrote about what it was like growing up with her fa- his father, his own father being at risk. Uh, and he talked to a lot of right-to-life people in the process of writing the book, and I, I, I'm not going to paraphrase what he wrote, um, but he, you know, he learned a lot talking from them, and they're not all people out there carrying guns. I mean, uh, and I don't, I didn't go out and interview people there. I just, I read books, and I read, you can just learn so much on the Internet. Uh so that's how I, I researched that angle. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I I definitely know that they're not all people that yeah. are carrying guns right. um, out there. It's it's interesting because it is it, it is something that even if um, even if you can think that the rights need to be remain there, it doesn't mean that you would necessarily want to to be a nurse work or a doctor working in the clinic itself. You know, there's there's so many different levels right. of um, how you can cope with this mm-hmm. uh, and the idea of... Well, of Diana saw herself as, as, as I write, there's, there's a line in the book where she thinks of herself as pushing the reset button for yes. these women. Yeah. And that's how she sees her role. How did you come up with that idea or line? I don't know. It just came. That's a good one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Um, so... So, um, let's see. What is there? Is there anything that has like sprung to mind that I haven't asked you so far, Elizabeth? I'm sort of um, about the characters because I, I was so interested to to hear how like the level of imagination you were bringing to the work because mm-hmm. you speak about. Um, these flashes of images that you have that you feel so sure of. And then you're, for example, um, writing towards a mother saying, uh, stop your groveling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also being sure that other scenes like the rock, paper, scissors mm-hmm. didn't belong. Mm-hmm. So, so how is that? Um, is that when you've sort of written the, the complete book? Like you've, how many, how many times maybe well let's talk about your method a little bit so sure. you're you're writing through the book uh-huh. and then um are you kind of understanding that these pieces aren't belonging at the time or is it after you've written a complete first draft what's what's your method well i don't write the the heart of the ending until after i've written the novel several times over and it's it's almost as though i have to i i'll write 70% of the book, and then I'll have to go back and fix some stuff. Well, that means that I start rewriting the whole book. And then next time through, I'll get 75% done. And then I'll go back and I'll start again, and 80 So I'm kind of tiptoeing up to the ending, not quite knowing how it's going to end, mm-hmm. even though I have a really clear sense of the, the emotion of the end of the book. I'm not quite sure how things are going to play out. And then finally, finally, 
I'll be, you know, working off a draft that's 95% done. And bingo, it's like that the ending suddenly becomes very, very clear. And that happened in Crazy as Chocolate, too. I played around with a lot of endings in that book uh, and never got the right one until I had gone back and written and rewritten that book several, oh, six or seven times. Um, that book's about two sisters growing up with a crazy mother. Um, and it's set in Seattle. Set in Seattle. It? And you find out in the first chapter that the mother has committed suicide when the girls, when the sisters were uh, 13 and 15. So that's no secret. Uh, but the circumstances um, of, the, of the, uh, the mother's descent don't really come out until the end of the book. Um, and that was a book that I just, I kept getting, you know, 95% there and just couldn't write the ending, didn't know how it was going to end. And this was the book that was called your quiet book? <laughs> really? That's so, yeah. well, um, well, well, let's, let's take a short break because that doesn't sound quiet at all to me. And you're actually heading next to Seattle, aren't you, I am. Elizabeth, on this book tour. So you'll right. be at Elliott Bay Book Company and Third Place Books um, right. for our Seattle listeners streaming. Yeah. Um, okay, well, we'll take a break. Uh, the Living Writers Show will be right back. listening to The Living Writers Show. If you're just tuning in, my name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm speaking with Elizabeth Hyde. Um, 
Elizabeth, so when we, we left off, um, let's see, we were talking about how you're heading to Seattle and, um, and the book Craziest Chocolate. Um, that's the book that was uh, just before the, right, that was this, my third novel. Your third novel, okay. And it's set in Seattle. Um, Seattle had a really strong sense of place for me. We only lived there for six years, but when we moved to Colorado uh, from Seattle, I really, I, I just felt like I had to write a book there about about Seattle and set it in Seattle. Um, so there was there was that real strong sense of place mm. to write about the Madrona trees and the the flowers and the the rain and the the lushness especially compared to where i was living now in in colorado and yes cuz you still have the mountains in colorado but not right. so much all all the, surrounded by water right. and and right. like you said the the evergreen yeah. <laughs> quality yeah. well um well when we were in that short break with the with the music you said that crazy as chocolate is a, a really different book yeah this quiet book of yeah. yours <laughs> um yeah want to tell us a little bit about that uh i i will it's uh uh that w- that book stemmed from a short story that i wrote uh when my children were very very young a story about a woman who uh who's kind of a side character in this short story but she's she's kind of a very simplified hypochondriac and I realized I really wanted to amplify this woman's problems and I love that phrase a uh-huh. simplified hypochondriac yeah well she wasn't nearly as crazy as I knew she could be and so she became the model for the mother in crazy as chocolate and I the story takes place at a time when probably they wouldn't have known how to diagnose her problem probably you know when you read the book you might think well uh, you know, maybe she's bipolar. She probably was bipolar, but they didn't know it back then. Uh, and there was great... For for her daughters, Izzy and Ellie, they, they grew up as children thinking that their mother was really cool and really different, and they loved her being different up until a certain point. And then all of a sudden they began to realize that she was different in a not-cool way. And... I try and dramatize scenes where they are put in a position of having to mother their own mother. And it's it's really, really, it becomes sadder and sadder the more their eyes are open to the extent of her problems. I mean, at the beginning of the book, you know, you have scenes where she's uh, tying her hair back with this bright red kerchief and taking them on these wild car trips across the state of Washington and nobody knows where they're going and she buys them Cokes and they're just having a grand time and then there are some scenes later on as they begin to get a little older where she becomes that that side of her becomes foolish to them and embarrassing and uh, her neediness really comes out and mm. it was it's well I can tell uh, and how you're speaking about this book that it is a book that's very uh you have a tenderness for this mm-hmm. book and mm-hmm. and and how your characters because yeah. that's a painful realization that the yeah. children go through even if the mother is remaining you know she is who she is throughout the whole thing it's it's very right. sad it seems um a lot of empathy mm-hmm. um but i haven't read that book so i won't go on and on about okay. that one um well let's let's talk uh, go back uh, rewind a little bit to talk about the structure in in your novel the abortionist's daughter um because i was curious about how um i won't give it away mm-hmm. but how 
the it, the the murder it, the murderer actually um, uh, s- uh, says that they are the murderer um, at a at, at a sort like in chapter fifteen mm-hmm. and there's um, a couple more chapters left mm-hmm. in the book mm-hmm. so how did you decide to structure what was what was your reason for choosing to structure it that way? Uh, I guess I'm not quite sure how to answer that, um, except to say that one thing that I, I learned, one thing that would have saved me a lot of time was to have written the chapter that dramatizes the death early on. It would have simplified things. I mean, I, I was kind of uh, feeling my way through this novel, I hadn't written, written a murder mystery before. And once I finally, oh, after three or four drafts of the novel, after getting 90% there or whatever, after finally writing that chapter and figuring out exactly what did transpire, it made the rest of the book fall into place for me. It was a lot easier to go back and fix the places. And, and Why I think do you if, think you avoided that scene then? Uh, I'd love to tell you it was for a really profound reason, but it wasn't. It was because I was too much into writing the other sections. Uh, And I tend to take things, you know, step by step. And I just kept thinking, well, I'll write that later. I really know how it's going to turn out. Well, I didn't exactly. I didn't have all the details down. Uh, And I I should have written that chapter a lot earlier than I did. So next time I write a murder mystery, I'll... I'll write the death scene but, first. But do you? Th- <laughs> that's that's a great. I love. I love that. That'll be like that. My soundbite. Uh, I'll write the death scene first. You know, I love that. Um, uh, so, do you think that's why um, that that you keep that structure in your your book then, so that we actually um, we we uh, um, we have the death scene um, much later uh-huh. in the book at the. Towards the end. Well, when <laughs> I, I hope I'm not I, giving this away. It's, no. it's tricky with the mysteries here. Right, right. Um, when I say write the death scene first, I wouldn't necessarily put it first in the novel. Mm-hmm. It would still come later on. Right, but just right. you, you know, just write it for your own sense. Um, and this book is is its own self. I don't know whether you know if I ever wrote another uh, suspense kind of murder mystery thriller slash whatever. Um, <laughs> I don't know as I'd do it this way. I mean, this is just this just made sense for this book. Uh, as I was writing about the people and what they were going through after the death, it was really clear that I was going to start the book off with Megan getting the news while she was doing ecstasy. That that was really clear at the at the beginning, and then boom, I wanted to write about what it was like for the husband to come across the body, and then boom, I wanted to write about Huck, the cop with the blue eyes, who I have always been in love with. Uh, and his, and it's just because of his blue eyes too. You mean this character, right? <laughs> yeah. this, your character. I love that you yeah. love him. Yeah, that you I love this character. Crush on him because he has no. It's not based on the detective you met. Oh, it's God, not based no. on any oh, anyone. God, no. It's just this no, 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 no. this image of him that you have. That's. Yeah. I love the life of writers in that yeah. way. I, I know I live in my head yeah. so much. So it's nice to know yeah. that uh, we can have a, a like sort of neighbor adjoining neighborhoods in the the mm-hmm. writer's life, right? Mm-hmm. I think all writers, yeah, can. Relate to that, yeah, must must be. Um, so, in one one more thing that I really wanted to know, writing this because you said that it's the story that drives it, but 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 still, you're you're sort of within this this p- 
political world mm-hmm. of um, and it, it's it's sort of it, of abortion. Right. So how hard was it to because it takes a while to write the book, mm-hmm. and so to be sort of having that as a, a presence in your life as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you could you kind of help me out here? I'm not quite sure. Oh, what okay. You're what I'm asking. Um, well, it's. You know, I will say why I'm asking, because actually in, in the mid-90s, I wrote a couple of articles about um, uh, things that, about, like abortion clinic, clinics mm-hmm. were being attacked and, yeah. and in Seattle. And, and right. so I, and I interviewed a, a Right to Life uh, guy in Portland, yeah. Andrew Burnett. And just after a certain point, after two articles, even though it was still a, a topic that needed to be discussed, I, I just felt like I didn't have another one in me. I uh-huh. couldn't, I found I couldn't write about it anymore. And right. I wondered if you, when this is the world of the imagination too. So it's yeah. as if um, your other world that you inhabit is now politicized and, and dealing with this this topic and these people's lives who are touched by it. And I just wondered if it was similar um, where it was um, that you felt like I, I will never write another book about abortion mm-hmm. or do another interview yeah. about abortion as a topic. I, I well, I never say never, but I I don't think I I will at this point because I feel like I've written the story that was in me that concerns an abortion provider. Um, I'm just not sure if I would feel compelled to write another story mm-hmm. um, about it, this. There are too many other stories I want to write. Oh, so. that's good. That's yeah. yeah and and it didn't take a toll on you then. It's you un- maybe you understand more about the political situation in this country, but it didn't take a toll on you. Uh, the death, uh, Megan losing her mother and Frank losing his wife took a toll on me. The death of Diana took a toll on me, but no, the pol- political backdrop didn't didn't I take see. a toll on me there. I mean, it, it could, and I certainly understand if you were doing nonfiction, if you were writing articles and interviewing people on the, who are out there um, taking one side or the other, uh, that could be really, really draining. But because this was the, the story of the death of a mother and mm. the death of a wife. And that's what was primary, f- right, the characters. That, that was exhausting for me. Um, I would have liked to have, have had Diana in the story a little bit more. Uh-huh. Well, you managed to to weave her in uh-huh. so wonderfully. So she's she's there. She's there, Thanks. and um, a, a powerful voice. Um, so, just as kind of to end where we began in a in a strange way, Elizabeth, uh-huh. t- the title of the book and um, and the title of your other book. Um, but wow, did you t- pick this title for your book? Uh, is... The abortionist daughter. I did pick. Um, yeah. And Crazy as Chocolate actually came, the, the title for that came from an Anne Sexton poem. I love Anne Sexton. Yeah, me she, too. Oh, oh, I'll have to talk. Uh, but there's one poem in which she writes, Even crazy, I'm as nice as a chocolate bar. And I just, that, that line just summed up or just captured the whole whole uh, flavor of life with, with Mimi, the main character in that book. Um, she was as nice as a chocolate bar. And then Manusik Valley, um, never, ever, ever put a title on your book that people can't pronounce. <laughs> right. That actually, I was tentative about saying it again. That's why I sort of trailed off. Big mistake. Big mistake. <laughs> I mean, that place was as real to me as any place in, in, in any of my novels. But, you know, the, the problem is people read a review 
and they can't pronounce it. So Manusik Valley. Valley. (laughs) Okay, well, there I've said it. Well, um, tonight, uh, please be sure to check out Elizabeth reading at Borders. Um, Elizabeth Hyde, her book, The Abortionist's Daughter. Um, Also, last week, we had Travis Holland on the show, and he'll be uh, reading this evening uh, the archivist story at Shaman Drum. Uh, You've been listening to The Living Writers Show. Uh, My name is T. Hetzel. Um, Until next week. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, the 20th of June, 2007. From KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. President Bush vetoes stem cell research for the second time in as many years and pushes for alternative studies. A series of sectarian mosque attacks plague Iraq on the heels of a new U.S. military offensive. 